0: Welcome to I Want to Put a Baby in You, a podcast exploring reproductive technology and life changing stories. Here are your hosts, Jennifer White and Ellen Trackman. Welcome to the podcast. I'm Ellen Trackman here with Jennifer White. Yay, I'm here. So, Jen, our conversation starter for the day um, what is the worst slash best part of your job?
1: Oh, do I have to... Is it an either or? I can only pick one? Mm, you could do uh, both. Or do either both? way. Either okay. way. Uh, I mean, honestly, I love what I do. So <laughs> it is, it's just that, I mean, if you start on the, you, the worst, you so we can end on the negative.
0: Do you want to remind yeah. listeners what you do oh, you yeah. host a podcast? Which, of course... I mean, <laughs> I do
1: this, which is really important. Um, but also, so I, oh, we own a surrogacy matching program, which... You know, of course, I'm going to start on the negative because then that means I can end on the positive, right? Um, the worst is, you know, people come to us with horrifying stories and they have endured significant loss. And unfortunately, you know, life is perfectly imperfect. And we sometimes are part of that journey with some other significant losses. So those are really hard. And w- we know and love these people. And it's it becomes a very personal feeling. You know, I mean, I definitely have cried a lot of tears for a lot of people, you know, whether, whether they know it or not, we, you know, it's very personal, but on the other side, you know, that means that the positive is that their joy is our joy too. Right. You know, so when a baby is born, like it is absolutely, I will walk around and I'll be like, I had a baby and people are looking at me and I'm like showing pictures on my phone. I I will do that. And people are like, you are a crazy lady. And I'm like, no, I had a baby. I mean, but beyond those two like extremes of the same thing, like I learned something new every day. I just had a spirited debate about antigens in your blood, which was really fascinating. Um, You know, so it's, it's a, an every day is not the same and every day you get to learn. So I love that. So what yeah. about you? What what do you do besides co-own the agency with me? And what yeah. is the best and worst of it?
0: Yes. Yeah. So separately, I'm an attorney. Shh, keep that a secret. Yeah. Um, so the best part, of course, is working with other attorneys. No, actually, I'm very fortunate to work with amazing attorneys in the field. Um, and it is a really interesting area of law where things are evolving so quickly and I think that all of us, especially the attorneys, are doing our best to protect families and those supporting other families the best we can. So, you know, it's really, like you said, it's a, it's amazing to pay the, play this small role as people form families and help others. But it's also really hard that when there are those losses and there's this probability every time with a you know an embryo transfer that when they fall into the probability, you feel it too. And, you know, it's not... It's not you, but you certainly feel their their losses and their victories. Yeah. But it takes a lot of people supporting this world. And there's so many um, wonderful people supporting others, forming families. And we get another guest to talk about another way families are supported. Welcome, Josie Rodriguez-Boucher, to the podcast. Thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me. I'm so excited to be here. Josie, you have both a fascinating profession of helping others grow their families, as well as your own story that brought you there. Let's start with your journey to this area. And I'm always, I was saying before we start, I'm always the worst. So what's the first question to get it started? So where do you start with your story?
2: It's um, a great question. <laughs> um, so I've been in the reproductive healthcare field for about 13 years, and um, as an acupuncturist. And in 2016, I started to come out as queer. And um, that really shifted the focus. I used to call my practice um, women's health. And as I became more a part of the queer community myself, and and then later coming out as non-binary, I ended up shifting my private practice from women's healthcare care practice to reproductive health care um, instead. And then I also, in addition to my private practice, had um, <clears throat> like an online, actually several online programs, but it mostly focused on helping cis um, hetero uh, women to conceive and then during, help them during their pregnancy and then help them postpartum. Um, so I just did a complete... 180 and rebrand and um, restructured all my programs and did a lot of additional training, um, learning how to support queer, trans, and non-binary folks to conceive and to start their families. So um, it really hits close to home because that's where I feel um, those are the sorts of communities that I am searching for and want to be involved in and where I feel most comfortable and at home. Um and it's what I'm, you know, really passionate about as well. So, it feels like a big, a big turnaround.
0: <laughs> yeah, and what, they feel what really. You, oh, oh, god! I was just. Gonna it say, it feels really intertwined that your own personal journey of identity, as well as your professional story. But I'll let Ted. Ted you can go with your question. No, and I was say. I mean,
1: you're kind of diving further back because you have to start at the beginning. Like what? Brought you into reproductive health in the first place? What mm. what piqued your interest
2: there? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, it's something I've always been interested in. I, you know, I growing up, my mom is an alternative healer in many respects. Um, she's an herbalist, and she was a yoga teacher when I was growing up, and. Um, She's an acupuncturist as well. We actually went to acupuncture school together. <laughs> um, and That's she, fun. <laughs> I know it was fun actually. Um, and she's an energy worker, and she just was always um, focused on healing. And so she, I grew up, you know, she worked out of the house when I grew up, and so I saw her, you know, treating all of her patients and talking to her clients, and they were mostly women and you know, we had all sorts of women's health books, you know, in my house growing up, and I would just read them and like do reports on them for school. And so it was always kind of my, um, one of my biggest influences was my mom and and how she approached healing with her clients and patients. So yeah, I think it started there, honestly. And then I just became a pretty um, passionate feminist, you know, pretty early on, and was really passionate about You know, not only women's health, but women's rights and all of that. So it just kind of um, fell naturally into place when I went to acupuncture school and decided, like, oh, what do I want to focus on? And who do I want to focus on serving? It just felt like a really natural fit for me. And also, while I was in acupuncture school, I did feel like I had kind of a knack for treating. PMS and regulating folks cycles and, you know, people would often come to me, like, just even when we were all in school, like, you know, classmates and colleagues would be like, could you help me with my cycle and <laughs> regulating and stuff? Because I just had a knack for it. Um, so yeah, it was really helpful to end up focusing on that with my practice. A lot of times, um, you know, newbie acupuncturists are afraid to um, really narrow in on their focus to just treat, you know, one thing. Um, but I found that was really helpful to do that. Yeah. And you
1: had, and I mean, obviously a lot of what we talk about is people's personal fertility, but what is your own personal fertility history? I mean, I, I, I'm going to make a a broad assumption here and say you have children. Yes, (laughs) I do. (laughs) I I actually
2: knew the answer to that question before I said it, but, (laughs)
1: um, but how did you get there in your life as well and how did that all intertwine?
2: Yes I forgot about that that's that was a really key part of it yeah I had trouble conceiving um I conceived first by mistake and my husband at the time and I were very excited and well first we were freaked out and then we got very excited about it and then I lost the baby Um, and so we, then we're like, oh, I guess we want kids like pretty badly. Like we weren't really sure that we were on the same page with that until that happened. And then, so then we were like, okay, let's go for it and let's try to conceive. And it just, it didn't work out, um, as easily or quickly as we'd hoped. And so, you know, it was extremely frustrating. And that is that around that time is when I started focusing on my private practice on fertility in particular. So not just reproductive health, but, um, you know, specifically helping people conceive. Um, so yeah, I tried everything. Basically I used all my training in Chinese medicine and then I also did a ton of research and, and, you know, courses and learning and, um, hooked up with some mentors in the fertility world and just put all this stuff into practice for myself. Um, and then it worked. And so I created this, my, the first iteration of my online fertility program, which used to be called Fertile Woman, um, that I used to run, oh my gosh, must've been in like 2011 was when I first launched it. And, um, it, yeah, it worked and it worked really well and I got pregnant and what I found out later was, so this was with my oldest daughter that I was pregnant with at the time when it finally worked, um, when I was 27 weeks pregnant with her, I had an endometrioma rupture on my left ovary and I had to have emergency open abdominal surgery to have it removed. And I know it was awful. It was so terrifying. And that week in the hospital, it was just like, ugh, it was so hard. Um, but I became kind of hospital famous at that hospital because everyone was expecting Izzy, my daughter, to be prematurely delivered because that sort of surgery is so risky. And um, the doctor said that he had never seen a case of endometriosis that was that bad. And that I had gotten, he said it was a miracle that I was able to get pregnant um, because my endometriosis was so bad. And I didn't even know that I had endometriosis. I had never been diagnosed um, up until that point. Up until that point, so um, so I was like, well, whatever I did really worked, <laughs> but, right? But like all that stuff, like I didn't realize what a what a steep hill I was trying to climb to get pregnant, and um, so that kind of gave me a lot of confirmation and validation. Like, okay, that all that stuff I did really worked, and I'm going to put it into a program and you know help other folks get pregnant because yeah, that was sort of the the proof. <laughs> Did you have trouble with so you said your oldest daughter
1: I assume you have had more children Yes. did, did you have any trouble in with future fertility after that or
2: just you already knew that you were you were climbing that hill so you just knew what yeah. you knew where to start right right i knew where to start and with my second daughter it happened really easily and quickly and i think it's probably because my oldest daughter kind of paved the way like when they um when i had that surgery i think they cleaned up the endometriosis as much as they could they quickly you know, tried to get in and out of there. But, um, so I think that helped because that was cleaned up a little bit just from the surgery. And then, um, they left my one ovary and, and my one fallopian tube intact. So I still have that, but, but to me it felt like, yeah, that, that still was pretty amazing that I was able to get pregnant again. So easily it was just like that one ovary and one fallopian tube. <laughs> so, and at that point I was doing all the things, you know, I was, I was eating well and, you know, taking good supplements and, you know, doing all the Chinese medicine practices. So I think my body was in a really good spot to conceive again.
0: I would love to hear more about your journey of your identity, because it must have been hard to be a feminist, to be so active in that area, and then, come to identifying as Mm -hmm. non-binary.
2: I would love to hear more about that journey for you. Yeah, totally. I, it was surprising to me also. (laughs) I, um, it's funny, like now looking back on it, I'm like, yeah, there was always like a little voice in my head as I was really pro women's rights and pro women's health and, you know, women, women, everything. And looking back, um, you know, there was always kind of a voice in my head thinking like, well, what about people with internal reproductive organs that don't, that aren't women that, that also need health and care, you know, for these organs specifically, um, you know, how are they feeling and they must be feeling pretty left out about all this and where do they go? You know, like who's addressing this? Um, and, you know, I felt, and also looking back, I was like, oh, I think I was pretty, like, <laughs> pro-women in a lot of ways because I was queer. Like, I wanted to be with a woman. And so that became more clear once I was able to come out. It was like, oh, that's partly where that passion was coming from, Um So once I was able, what's that? Is that something that you didn't recognize or you did recognize early on? No. Well, it kind of came and went. So I I definitely recognized it in college when I was in college and I dated a woman in college and, um, and then I kind of got sort of scared away by it. I'm not sure exactly why it was definitely, it was a whole different experience than being with cis men and to me, at the time, I think it felt too overwhelming. I, f- I think I felt like I was scared of that part of myself, um, and also it was a lot more emotional. Like, like being yeah, with a sure. woman was just a lot more emotional, and, and I felt like I, you know, being with cis men was a lot easier. For <sighs> at least that's how it felt at the time, sure. um, and so I think I kind of got derailed a little bit. So, you know, so I went you know, I sort of had like a brief, um, dipped my toe in, into that world. And then I was like, actually, I think I'm good with cis men. And so I went back to cis men for a long time. Um, cause I was in my twenties, you know, and then I came, I didn't come out till more recently, like 2016. So I would have been 37. Um, yeah. So I forget the question now. Wow. No, I'm just <laughs> rambling. <laughs>
1: <laughs> sorry, and that's right. It kind of made me go, and, like, and this is just more of a, you know, if if you don't mind helping educate, because I think a lot of people who are listening may not understand a lot of differences that that gender and sexuality right. are also very different, and yeah, you know, so you know, obviously that was talking about sexuality, and I know that's probably where you were trying to get to. I think that's where we started, and we yes. we're kind of taking the long run, yeah. uh, the long run around <laughs> <Yeah>. it. Um, <laughs> but you know, if you don't mind just educating people on the kind of the. The difference there. Because I think a lot of people yeah. don't understand that difference. Yes. That you, can, you can identify as a different gender and a completely different sexuality. And those two things are not connected to each other. Yes,
2: so. exactly. Yep. That's exactly right. Yeah. Um, sexuality and gender are two different things. So yeah, when I came out as queer, I mean, initially, I actually came out as a lesbian um, because I wasn't clear on my own gender at that point. Um, so that was a completely different experience, yeah, of coming out as like, oh, I want to be with a woman, that's my sexuality. Um, you know, and then a a few years later, coming out as non-binary was a completely different experience. Um, and there's a saying that goes, your gender is who you go to bed as. And your sexuality is who you go to bed with. (laughs) I have never heard
0: that. I I like (laughs) that.
2: (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, it's very clarifying.
0: (laughs) Yeah. What what pronouns do you use? I use they them pronouns. Okay, great. And has that been a challenge to get people to
2: recognize and respect that
0: that choice? Yes,
2: yes. It has been a challenge. Um, Some folks are just really on board and right away get it. And those are the folks that I am surrounding myself with and who I feel most comfortable with. Um, and in a lot of cases, it's it's folks that I've more recently met, you know, who it's hard, because I think it's harder for people who have known you for a long time, you know, and then suddenly you're like, oh, I'm non-binary and I use they, them pronouns. And it's like, it's just a much... Um, more challenging shift, I think for, uh, you know, compared to people who meet you as non-binary or meet you with those pronouns or like, Oh, that's just who they are, you know? Um, but yeah, but then, you know, I do have, you know, a core group of friends who have been extremely supportive and, you know, are really putting in the effort to learn about gender and, and using the, the correct pronouns and everything. Um, but yeah, it's tough. It's really tough. How has your family reacted? Um, I I don't have a huge family, uh, so it's just me and my mom actually. (laughs) Um, So yeah, she's extremely open-minded, which you may have guessed from um, just from (laughs) what I mentioned about her background. Um, So yeah, she's nothing I've ever done has really surprised her. That's kind of like her favorite thing to say. She used to say, (laughs) um, "She used to the only thing you could do to surprise me would be to become a nun.'" (laughs) funny so. yeah, actually,
0: when I asked a question I was thinking of your children how are you oh your-
2: yeah yeah they have actually been some of my biggest supporters they are so amazing about it they're six and eight years old and my eight-year-old is using my correct pronouns and it like almost makes me teary when she does it it's like and then she asked me the other day, "Do you still want us to call you mom, or is there a different word that you that oh, you'd like?" And I was like, "Oh my gosh, wow!" Yeah. I was like, "I actually I love-, love that one." I know, and I was like, "I actually love the word mom, and that's fine. Like, I actually don't mind at all when they call me mom um, or mama, and I'm like, oh, that's fine. Like, I like it when you when you call me that." And she's like, "Okay, hmm. just these conversations are incredible." And I've actually been che- We've been checking out books from the library about um you know non-binary kids and who are like the characters in these books or um you know books where the parent or the teacher is non-binary um and there's actually quite a few books um on this subject and it's it's sparked so many amazing conversations with us and they are totally like that's the thing with kids with when you present these sort of um concepts to them they get it immediately because they're just like yeah that makes sense like yeah. You know, gender more flexible, right. It's more flexible. <laughs> they're more creative. They're not like, um, as indoctrinated with our culture yet. Right. And so they're like, they're just so open to these ideas and yeah, they've been actually two of my best supporters with oh, this. That's <laughs> I right. love it. And do you want to name any of those books in case people listening are looking yeah. for those resources? Oh my gosh. Yes. One of them, I should have taken some screenshots of the books. Um, I actually, what I can do too is, is send you a list afterwards. If you want to put, yeah, we'd be happy to put out some in resources the, in the yeah. show notes or something. Um, yeah, one of them is called, which I love, it's probably one of my favorite ones is called call me. They call me mix I think is the title and it's a bilingual book. So it's in Spanish and English and it's written by a non-binary kindergarten teacher who, um, So so instead of Mr. or Miss or Mrs., it's MX instead. And so they tell the kids, like, just call me Mix because I'm a mix of both, Um, you know, women or, you know, a man and a woman.
0: I'm learning so much already. We had another we had a guest come on who I was mentioning was the first time I had ever seen MX before yeah. someone's name in a signature. And I actually never thought of how to pronounce it. <laughs> so yes. I never thought of it as mix. mix. Interesting.
2: Yeah, exactly. And so the girls, um, my daughters, they have like started naming some of their stuffed animals, you know, mix so-and-so or, you know, they'll Aww. be like, they'll be like this, you know, this unicorn is non-binary and their name is this. And <laughs> Oh, it's so sweet, it. wow. but yeah, I'll, I'll give you a list. Cause there's so many good ones. Um, the, another good one that I'm thinking of off the top of my head is called, um, I think it's called neither. And it's about this, um, land called this. And or I think it's called this or that. And like, and this new creature is born and they call it neither. <laughs> it's like, oh,
1: wow. it's yeah. so
2: good. Yeah. I'll, I'll write them down for you. That would be fantastic.
1: And so you said something that kind of, and I know, you know, from looking at your website and things like that, another important part of your identity
2: is your cultural identity too. Yeah,
1: You know, talk about that as well.
2: Yeah. Yeah. That has been a huge piece of all of this for me is becoming reacquainted with my Mexican ancestry. Um, the, my Mexican ancestry comes from my dad's side, who I don't have a relationship with. Um, I do have a relationship with his, his family, so his sisters and his mom. I was close to my grandma. Um, but as far as, yeah, the kind of the Mexican side of things, it's really gotten obscured and buried. And so from a really young age, I felt really connected with my Mexican ancestry. I'll never forget one time when I was in high school... I, um, I went on a service trip down to a little fishing village in Mexico and the night before I left, I had a dream. I, a lot of times I have vivid dreams and I feel like over the years and throughout my life, I've had a lot of like, um, communications in my dreams and really significant dreams and I'll write them down and, you know, I use them for all sorts of purposes, but, um, So I had this dream about the Virgin of Guadalupe and I didn't know about her and I didn't know that she existed. I didn't know what she looked like. Um, And I remember waking up in the morning and I just had this really clear vision of her. And I was like, wow, what is that? And I explained it to my mom and my mom was like, oh, that's the Virgin of Guadalupe. Like she visited you. And she showed me a picture of her and I was like, yeah, that's exactly what it was. And then I went to Mexico the next day and was there for, I think we were there for about three weeks. And, um, you know, I saw her everywhere. <laughs> I was like, I was, I was like, oh my gosh, that was, it was just so profound to have that experience and then go to, that, you know, go on that trip. And then that trip is, that was one of the most pivotal points in my life. I think that trip was, I remember um, not wanting to come home. Like it was, I actually tried to, drop out of high school and live there. <laughs> oh, <wow>. <laughs> <laughs> and my mom was like bracing herself for that to happen. She told me later that she had like hired a bodyguard to like follow me down there and all this wow. stuff. Like, oh wow! <laughs> like, I was like, I belong here. Like I felt so attached to that place. Um, so yeah. So things like that have kind of, um, happened throughout my life, where I've just felt this in- incredible deep connection with that side of my heritage. And so, you know, part of coming out and and coming out as queer, coming out as non-binary has also been like, who am I? You know, not only like, who am I gender-wise and sexuality-wise, but like, who am I, you know, in all respects. And so, um, yeah, so I, I've been, you know, I just signed up for a course through the University of New Mexico to study um, the traditional healing folk um, art of healing called Coranderismo in Mexico. Um, so that's been really fascinating and I've been doing a lot of reading and um, yeah, there's an incredible book I'm reading right now called The, the New Mestiza, um, just about like a kind of a similar um You know, situation to what I'm in of like being kind of like one foot in this world and one foot in the Mexican world. And um, anyway, yeah. So it's just it's been a really integral part of figuring out who I am. Have you? I assume
0: you've been back since then, right? As an adult, did you go back? Yes,
2: I have been back um, to different parts of Mexico, but not for an extended amount of time. I would love at some point to you know, figure out how to be down there for longer periods of time for sure. Yeah.
0: So I'd love to hear more about how all of this exploration and your own identity has translated into your, into your profession, into your practice.
2: Yeah. I, I mean, what it's done is really led me down a path of decolonization, like really looking at like just how white supremacy plays a role in everything and how, Colonization plays a role in everything, um, you know. Even to the point of like, I'm practicing Chinese medicine, and I'm not, you know, I'm not of Asian descent, and so there's there's so many. I just feel like everything has been kind of like peeling back layers of like, oh, this was a lie, and this was a lie, and this was a lie, <laughs> like like gender's a lie, and like. You know, all this land I'm on is stolen. You know, like, everything has been told to us in this whitewashed way. Um, so I feel like that's been sort of this sobering, like, series of awakenings of being like, oh, my gosh, like, what is the truth? Like, what really belongs to us? Who are we really? Like, you know, um, yeah, so it's really, it's really led me down a path of activism and, you know, really anti-racism and um, yeah, just really being vocal and active in as much as as much as much I can, you know, showing up in that way to um, you know, bring, re-center marginalized communities in any way that I can um, and especially BIPOC communities and queer, trans, and non-binary communities. Which
1: are extraordinarily underserved in the utility yes. sphere as yes, well. Yes,
2: exactly, and that's what you know, that's what's really where my focus is. I did a ton of um, interviews when I was like refocusing my business. And I talked to a lot of folks about, you know, the exact, um, their exact experiences like infertility clinics and, you know, how they've been treated and misgendered and you know experienced harm and in some cases violence and it's you know it was appalling because you know that's the thing too is just because i'm now i'm out as non-binary and queer like i wasn't when i was going through my own fertility journey and so there's been a lot that i've had to learn about like through talking with folks and you know through hearing other people's stories um and getting really clear on how I can show up to change that and how I can help people, you know, have a more, you know, safe experience when they're trying to conceive.
0: Can you share Uh, any of those lessons? I I was about to say, I'd love to
1: hear (laughs) some of those, even if they're just lessons for people in general, even uh, not as a provider, but in general day to day, how can we can all encourage each other to feel safe?
2: Oh yeah. There's so much. Um, But yeah, I mean, basically what I've learned is that something I can only strive for is to create safer environments that really no environment is going to be completely safe for someone who is um, part of a more marginalized community, because it's just on so many levels, there's so, you know, so many things that are going to, you know, that we can't, we're going to have some blank spots if we don't, you know, if we're not ourselves part of that community. Um And even if we are part of that community, like I meant, like everyone has different experiences and different privileges and different relationship to privilege. And um, so there's, you know, we can't, all of us can't be, you know, aware of all the ways that we're harming folks at all, you know, all the time. Um, So just like some things that like in my private practice, for example, Um, things I've learned is how to be more trauma informed because a lot of folks who are queer trans and non-binary and BIPOC, um, have, you know, tend to have experienced more trauma in their lives. And so like, for example, you know, not calling my treatment table a bed, you know, and calling it, you know, a treatment table. And so, and like, um, you know, asking before I start to needle a patient, like asking for consent, um you know, you know, asking for permission before I access, you know, more vulnerable parts of their body, like their belly, Um, you know, using the correct pronouns, having those, those um, spaces available on my like patient intake forms is really important so that they, you know, that's so that one of their first interactions with me is filling out their new patient paperwork, you know, so seeing that right away can hopefully send that message like, you know, I'm, I intend to use the, you know, your pronouns correctly. And I know how to do that. Um, Yeah. So just little things. And even like, you know, in your waiting area, like having, you know, art and things like that, that make people feel um, that they're reflected back to them or that they're comfortable Um, having restrooms that are, um, you know, trans friendly, um, you know, things like that. And, And then You know, in terms of online, you know, it's a whole different, a whole, you know, different things to consider when you're interacting with folks online versus, you know, in a private practice. But, um, but those are just a few of the things. Yeah. I'm also curious about the online lines. Is there any of those you can share? Yeah. I mean, so something that I found specifically with queer folks is that um, their partners, are so much more involved in the fertility process than, than I've seen traditionally with cis hetero folks, um, where it tend in the past, it was usually the women that I worked with and I didn't really work much with the, um, cis male partners. And now, you know, treating more queer folks and, and being more on the team, you know, with queer folks and them conceiving, it's like, both partners, or even you know, if sometimes there's more than two partners, they're all on board and they're all involved and they all want to be a part of it, you know. And to, and I think something that I've come across too is um, in queer queer couples where you know someone has n- no genetic um, connection to the baby that sometimes they're not seen as you know um, they're not valued or seen as you know, as part of the, the unit. So that's something that I'm really focusing on in my online program is to like how to bring the partners into all of this um, and have them feel like they're really an important part of this process because they are. Um, so that was one thing that was really surprising. And then the other thing with my online programs was um, realizing that the population that I'd been working with before were mostly struggling with their fertility Um, which is why they came to see me in the first place. Whereas now that I'm focusing on queer, trans and non-binary folks, um, they're not necessarily struggling with their fertility, you know, they're, and a lot of times their their fertility is fine, (laughs) you know, their fertility is intact. They just need, um, you know, a little bit more assistance in some cases to get pregnant because of, you know, they need the sperm or they need the egg or whatever. So, um. So that was an interesting shift too. And
0: do you find other unique uh, ways that you are helping your
2: patients given kind of the shift in the population that you're focused on? Yeah. I mean, it's been, you know, a lot of, I always say like a lot of what I do is um, emotional support as well, Um, which was true before, but I think with queer, trans and non-binary folks, it's definitely um, you know, it's hard to find, uh, fertility support that is also queer. And so I feel like that's been, um, a big shift, particularly in my private practice where I feel more connected with my, you know, queer, trans and non-binary patients. Um, and I think that they feel more connected to me. Um, and so, you know, it's a different relationship than it was, before, which is, you know, something I've actually talked about with a recent guest on my podcast, um, who's a non-binary acupuncturist as well. And, um, and we were talking about how it's another aspect of that colonization of like, how, you know, folks in the role of quote, unquote, doctor should have all the power and, you know, should be in this controlling position where there's, you know, really strong boundary and you, you know, you can't, um, relate personally to your patient or anything like it's like this very, um, you know, strict way of, of seeing things. And we were talking about like in the queer community, like, you know, when you're looking for a practitioner to go to, like, you want to know if they're queer, (laughs) like not only if they're like open to treating queer folks, but if they're queer themselves, like that's important to know, like, because that that will really dictate, you know, your safety in that situation. Um, And so, you know, in the past, like, I think that that's something that a practitioner may have or some still do, you know, try to keep private. Um, But that's something I feel really strongly about like showing people like, you know, no, I'm queer. I'm non-binary. Like if you, you know, if you want to come to me, like you'll be with family, you know? Yeah,
1: no, I can see, that. and I see. I, I mean, it's kind of a an, on a corollary to that. That's why I see a lot of times people feel more comfortable with a midwife yeah. for delivery versus a, an OB because the right. OB has that very strict, like glass castle kind of yes. level of separation. Yeah, but the midwife is definitely much more personal. It's almost like you get to you like more conversational things right. like that. So, I, I it's a very similar why I see a lot of people kind of make those choices too and have that feeling. So I can see how that is definitely would translate well. And, and that's why a lot of people like certain doctors, you know, I like this doctor. They actually talk to me
2: right, as opposed to they talk down to me or tell me. Exactly. Which can also be really triggering for someone who's had trauma as well. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And you mentioned your podcast. Do you want (laughs) to, do you want to talk more about your podcast? Sure. Yeah. It's called the intersectional Fertility Podcast, and it centers the experiences of um, queer, trans, and non-binary, and especially BIPOC folks um, who are trying to conceive. So I right now, the pattern is that I do two interviews and then an episode of just me talking. And so the episodes of just me talking are um, super like more information, informative, packed episodes of like tips and tricks and, you know, really concrete things to do to increase your fertility. Um, And then the interviews I have are either with, um, you know, queer, trans, non-binary, BIPOC folks who are either um, like an expert in the fertility field or, um, or in the health and wellness world in some way, or trying to conceive, um, you know, so kind of either ends of the of those spectrum. Um, and the interviews so far have been my favorite. They've been so fun to do. I love um, interviewing folks and just having that quality time with like one on one with people. Um, one of my most favorite interviews that I recently did was with uh, Gabby Rivera, who's a, um, an author. She's one of my favorite authors. She wrote, I don't know if you've heard of it. It's called Juliet Takes a Breath. And it's a Uh, It's wonderful. I highly recommend it. It's actually a young adult novel, but I loved it as an adult. (laughs) Um, And she has a podcast as well called Joy Uprising. But anyway, she's Latina and queer and um, she's trying to conceive. And so she came on the podcast and it was amazing. It was such a great interview and people really resonated with it. Um, So yeah, I I love doing the podcast. (laughs)
1: I, say, I I want to explore that book, but I think we'll talk about that one offline yeah. <laughs> afterwards. Yeah, it's so um, good. I mean, just a, a quick I guess, you know, I, I think it sounds like you explore a lot of this in, in your podcast. So I, I want to encourage people to go listen to that and not stay here and only listen to us. But what are a quick tip, you know, for somebody who is just starting to explore, you know, that possibly either they want to. Uh, figure out if they have fertility issues early on, or if they know, It's just just one quick thing, a piece of advice. If somebody randomly walked up to the street and said, I need acupuncture advice related to fertility. What, what would that be right. for you? <laughs> oh
2: gosh. That's such a good question. Um, I mean, I think probably the best place to start is to, I mean, I don't know, maybe two things. It might be good to go get like, um, a fertility workup just to see, just to make sure, you know, all the levels are where they should be and that the egg quality is good. And, you know, all of that kind of like the nuts and bolts of the fertility Mm -hmm. picture. Um, and I love that you are already talking like being like a partner with medical providers too, which is, which is good. Uh, Yeah, exactly. I mean, I actually work really closely with a fertility clinic, um, here in Colorado. Um, and they've been great. I've been working really closely with them for the past several years, and I go down there on the day of transfer for my patients, and I do before and after acupuncture treatments um, for my IVF transfer patients, and it's great. You know, that's you know marrying the two, I think, is really ideal because there's so much assisted reproductive technology that's helpful for queer folks, um, and this clinic that I work with um, is very you know, they're very, they know that that part of their community that they're serving are queer people. Um, So, you know, they're very open to all that and they do a pretty good job. So, yeah. So, you know, that would be my first piece of advice is just to get like a a fertility workup um, to measure your hormone levels and your blood levels and um, to, you know, see where your egg quality is at. And then, you know, you know, information is power. And, you know, so I, th- I think the tricky part of that is finding, you know, a queer trans and non-binary friendly fertility clinic. Um, so that would be, that could be a little challenging depending on where they are. But, and then, you know, after that, you know, I think an acupuncturist is a great place to start because they can um, help to bring things into balance if there's anything that's off balance and, They can also help to um, improve the fertility, increase the fertility, whereas Western medicine um, don't really have the tools to do that. Um, So together, you know, that really works well to do both. I love it. I love it.
1: Um, we will definitely link to your podcast and to your website. There's so much information on your website, too. I had, yeah. I've had fun poking around on it. Oh, thanks. So. Okay. Go ahead
0: and remind uh, listeners who are listening
2: where to find you, where to find your podcast and your website. Yes. Yeah. So my website is intersectionalfertility.com. And there's a space on there. If you scroll down to the bottom, you can enter your name and, and email to actually take a quiz that I made and you can get, um, customized fertility recommendations based on your wow. element. Um, so that if people like instant gratification, that's a good thing to do. <laughs> Who doesn't? And then, right. Yeah. And then the podcast is on there as well, or you can find it on all your favorite podcast platforms. It's called the intersectional fertility podcast and i will be launching my new online program called fertile it'll be a 5 week online program i'll be launching it this summer at the end of the summer 2021 so if you join the mailing list you'll get notified about that when registration Great. opens and then i'm on instagram and my handle is intersectional fertility
0: i love it awesome. awesome thank you for joining us and of sharing course. with us
2: yeah thank you for having me
0: Thank you, Josie, for sharing your story as well as the way you are able to to bring so much to the community and so much support to to those on this journey. Yes, we definitely absolutely appreciate you so much.
1: Um, right. Anyway, like I said, the the pies, the lows, like in our introduction, like any way, any of us can support people having having babies and families and w- or whatever they choose is awesome, right? <laughs> so. Yeah. Um, but you can support us, you know, like I always like to have this, this fun transition by going to iTunes and, and giving us a little five star rating or, or whatever number of stars you choose to give us <laughs> um also don't forget that we have fun merchandise i mean you can't see me right now while i'm recording but you have to take my word that i am wearing a shirt that says i want to put a baby in you and it never ceases to have conversations in public people stop <laughs> and laugh every time i wear it in public so totally oh. if you if you want people to laugh at you you should yeah. wear it i'm gonna or at least there. Did, i don't know
0: if you saw this recently on social media but um i uh, friend of a friend, um, you know, someone was in the hospital having some serious medical issues and they posted about how the one thing that made that person and the staff laugh was the sperm squeezy that that we have. And they were using that to like gain strength and also to like bring a little, you know, levity to a hard situation. I I love it.
1: (laughs) See, it's not laughing at you is what I look at it with my shirt. It's laughing with me. So (laughs) definitely go to our website and check out our merchandise if you're interested or if you're more subtle like Ellen and have a phone case, you know. Mm -hmm you know, <laughs> as opposed to a big, you know, have it emblazoned across your chest. Uh, but <laughs> thank you to everybody who supports us and uh, makes it so that we can bring this to you. Thank you to Tyler, who, small shout out to Tyler, right? He just had a baby. So
0: congrats, hey, congrats to Tyler.
1: Um, to Melissa, to Amanda, and of course, to Chris at at Bird Studios, who um, gets makes it so that we can do what we do. So thank you, everyone.